Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, it's already the final day of the month, Wednesday the 31st of January 2024. A warm welcome to Money Talk from me, Peter Lewis. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, Hong Kong has unveiled details of a proposed new national security law targeting acts of espionage, treason and foreign political influence. The legislation is on top of a national security law that China imposed on Hong Kong in 2020 in the wake of anti-government protests. Hong Kong's chief executive John Lee said the legislation would ensure stability in the SAR and safeguard against geopolitical tensions. The proposed legislation states information related to the economic and social development of the city, as well as major policy decisions and scientific technology, could be considered state secrets, mirroring language in mainland China's legislation. The IMF has upgraded its forecast for global growth this year by 0.2 percentage points to 3.1% as it hailed progress on curbing inflation. In an upgrade to its world economic outlook, the IMF left its outlook for global growth unchanged at 3.2% next year. The multilateral institution cited the unexpected strength of the US economy and fiscal support measures in China as reasons for this year's upgrade. China's growth projection for this year was revised up to 4.6% from 4.2%. And India's economy is expected to be among the fastest growing in the world at 6.5% this year, up from a prior 6.3% forecast. The Eurozone economy narrowly skirted recession after stagnating in the fourth quarter, following a 0.1% contraction in the previous period, and compared to forecasts of a 0.1% fall. Germany contracted in the final three months of 2023 and France stagnated, while both Spain and Italy's GDP growth rates beat expectations. Saudi Arabia has dropped a plan to boost its oil output capacity in a major reversal from previous policy. Saudi Arabia's energy, energy ministry ordered energy giant Aramco to maintain its oil production capacity at 12 million barrels per day, abandoning a planned increase to 13 million barrels per day by 2027, the firm said on Tuesday. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Nitin Dialdas, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. And with a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks slipped lower after the jolts report showed an unexpected rise in job openings to 9 million, reducing bets for a 25 basis point rate cut by the Fed in March. The S&P 500 ended the day 0.1% lower at 4,925. The Dow added 134 points, that's 0.4%, to end at 38,467, marking its seventh record close this year. The technology-heavy Nasdaq Composites lost 0.8% ending at 15,510. After the closing bell, Alphabet shares slid 4.2% on disappointing growth in Google ads, and shares of Microsoft traded 1.8% lower after the close, despite the software giant reporting record revenue of 62 billion US dollars. 
US Treasuries sold off after fresh data showed domestic job openings rose unexpectedly in December. Yields on rate-sensitive two-year Treasuries rose four basis points to 4.36%. Yields on the benchmark 10-year notes fell four basis points to 4.04%. The US dollar index cut early losses to end the day unchanged around 103.42 after the jolts report. The dollar strengthened 0.1% against the yen to 147.61 yen per dollar. In mainland China, the yuan was 0.1% firmer and around 7.17 and a half renminbi to the dollar. That's ahead of China PMIs today. Gold ended the day up 0.2% at $2,035 an ounce. Oil prices rose on Tuesday after the IMF boosted its growth forecast and as the market braced for the US response to a deadly drone attack on its troops in the Middle East. The Brent contract for March settled at $82.50 a barrel, up 0.8% on the day. Hong Kong and Chinese equities continue to sell off on Tuesday as promises of more government support for financial markets fail to materialise. The Hang Seng plunged 374 points, or 2.3%, to end at 15,703. The tech index slumped 3.3%. The declines were broad-based, with BMYD tumbling 4.4% as its profits for Q4 missed estimates, despite record deliveries of electric vehicles in the quarter. The Hang Seng is down now 7.9% so far in January and is shaping up for the worst start to a year since 2016. On the mainland, China's benchmark Shanghai Composite Index sank 1.8% to 2,831, taking its losses for January to 4.9%. It does look like it's going to be a quiet start for Hong Kong stocks. Futures markets pointing to a decline of about 18 points for the Hang Seng at the open. The index projected to open around about 15,685 this morning. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. It's time to welcome our regular Wednesday morning guest, Enzio Von Fall, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. Morning to you, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And also with us is Nitin Dialdas, who's Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Welcome back, Nitin. Uh, good morning, Peter. Hong Kong has unveiled details of a proposed new national security law targeting acts of espionage, treason and foreign political influence. The legislation is on top of a national security law that China imposed on Hong Kong in 2020 in the wake of anti-government protests. After a four-week public consultation, which will last until February the 28th, the new legislation is expected to be submitted to the city's legislature, which is packed with Beijing loyalists, of course, and then enacted this year. Hong Kong's chief executive, John Lee, said the legislation would ensure stability in the SAR and safeguard against geopolitical tensions. And the proposed legislation states information related to the economic and social development of the city, as well as major policy decisions and scientific technology, could be considered state secrets, which mirror language in mainland China's legislation. Hong Kong's current definition of the term is not broad enough, the proposal said. Um, NGO, this has been one of the reasons this is being done, according to John Lee, is that businesses want it. They want to see more stability um, in Hong Kong. Is that what you're hearing from businesses? No, I because I what I'm I mean, as an ex-American citizen, I'm I'm very citizen. I'm very aware of this national security stuff because I we went through this in the in the U.S. in the Vietnam War, particularly 
that's a national security matter. You can't discuss it. Mm-hmm. And so this is nothing new. There's nothing Chinese about this. It's just a little bit anachronistic for a government that wants to be an open um, open for business to the world community that it is and this is what Paul Jay was saying in the legislative was is just getting increasingly officious um, in dealing with things like jaywalking and stuff like that and then surreptitiously sending summons to people instead of having the guts just to stand up to them on the street and say you've jaywalked here's a fine mm-hmm. so none of this endears us to the international community because anything can be national security and whether it's in Hong Kong or in Taiwan or in Germany or in the US, of course, the British also must have had national security laws here. They may not have made it as public, but it just doesn't help our growth prospects making it so onerous and and again, um, making people, frankly, a little bit frightened of the state and just what they can and what they can't do. I don't think that helps business here. That's what the business... There's, there's a lack of detail, isn't there? There seems to be yes. what is basically a policy, but you know, no clear definition of where the red lines are and definitions of what's uh, considered a state secret, for example. Well, yeah, that's that means it's going to be, become very arbitrary. I was told last night, this is not a state secret, that apparently if you walk 75 yards further out from a red light, then you're not jaywalking. But if you're within the 75-yard um, mm. boundary, then you are jaywalking. That's a little bit sort of, why not 76 or 77 yards or meters? It doesn't matter. Um, it, it's all, it, it, it can just become very arbitrary. And we've been through this in other countries. So again, I, all that I can say is it's not palatable, but it is nothing new. Mm. Nitin, what are your thoughts on this? Is this something you think businesses will welcome? Um, no, <laughs> I think, as NZA said, I don't think people are too worried about the fact there's a national security law coming in. It's the fact that, as we've just discussed, it's completely arbitrary. Nobody knows where the lines are. Nobody knows where, you know, what they can or can't, can't say and where to cross. Now, if you're a business, you want clarity. So you want to know what you can do and you can't do. If, you know, you do something completely innocent, but then get told that's a net breach of national security, no one wants to come in and have that risk on their shoulders. So Mm. it doesn't help the business community at all. I think it's really a case that unless they get clear lines of definition and say, this is where we're starting to cross, that might, you know, that might appease some, but I think overall over the last four years, they've they've actually gone over the top with all this national security stuff and it's not endearing ourselves to the world at all. Um, I'm not saying we're draconian. I mean, to be fair, I think Singapore is actually a much more draconian state than Hong Kong is. But everyone knows the lines in Singapore, so people are happy to go there and deal with that. Mm. Whereas in Hong Kong, we don't know what the lines are. We don't know what's going to get you in trouble. And therefore, people are staying away. I mean, the proposed legislation, one of the things that has raised concerns is, for example, information relating to the economic development of the city could be considered a state secret. Now, it doesn't say what exactly is the economic um, data that could be a state secret, but 
presumably this is a worry, isn't it? If you're an investment bank or if you're a consultant and you're, you're providing information to clients about the economic yes. development of, of Hong Kong, you could be in breach of the national security law. That, that surely must be rather chilling for, for some firms, as we've seen on mainland China, where you know a lot of these consultancy firms have had people rounded up for you know doing what they thought was just normal advisory type work, helping people understand China, only to find that apparently um, they're, they're divulging state secrets. I actually can't even understand that line. I mean, economic data is published anyway publicly. So what are you going to go out there and say economically about a city that's going to be a national security risk? Hmm. Peter, I, I this, think that what's... Yeah. yeah, just to add to that, I, I, I think it's it's the broader thing in my mind that the officials here are so often wanting to be more Chinese than the mainlanders. Mm. It's this preemptive obedience that killed English, by the way, back under C.H. Tung already. It's not new when the idea was, well, we think they... We think they want us to speak Mandarin, so let's speak Mandarin and thus let's not speak English. I mean, China never said don't speak English. China wants us to speak English, for heaven's sakes. It wants us to have a rule of law instead of us going and taking our court cases to China and saying, please, can you decide what the court cases, how the, how, what, what the ruling should be in China? Um, mm. that's, that's about six or nine months old. That's not the more recent development. So I think that China is actually very disappointed in us because we're the ones who are not keeping up the two systems bargain. It's not what the what the silly foreign press keeps on saying that it's a bad mainland and poor little Hong Kong being beaten up by the big Goliath. I think it's very much our own doing. And that's why I'm in total agreement with Paul Jay, contentious as he may be, but when he's saying that the law enforcement approach investment and law enforcement approach here um is becoming increasingly restricted by the heavy, the efficiencies of law enforcement officials, such as these officiously co co um, issuing covert summons on jaywalking, as if that's, mm. don't we have bigger fish to fry? Social housing, technology, English, health, medical, welfare, things like that. We're, work, we're worrying about jaywalking now. The, the problem is, as, as you say, Enzio, this is trying to, you know, the Hong Kong government may be trying to outdo the mainland here. But yes. uh, the, the thing is, um, don't people want to see the differences between Hong Kong and the mainland rather than the similarities? That's what overseas investors are, are looking at. How is Hong Kong different from, um, from mainland China? This is what China does. This is what China, from my mainland friends, desperately wants. It wants us to be an international capital, not one of these ridiculous hubs. Everything is a hub, but has, has no spokes, by the way. Um, so it, it, the, the, the mainland are actually the good guys. They're the ones saying, we want you to be yourselves and, and bring us the rule of law and bring us do, a freely do, do you convertible think so? you, currency. You, you think they want um, our rule of law on the, on the mainland? Well, I, think, I don't think that they want to interfere as much as we are wanting them to interfere in our rule of law. Let's put it that way. Mm. Um, how do you think foreign businesses are going to look at this when they see this from uh, from overseas? I mean, you know, they do want to see a, a differentiation, don't they, between Hong Kong and China? That was the idea of yes. one country, two systems. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think ultimately that is what people want, is they want that second system. And, you know, we're, we're talking to guys who are potentially looking at doing a business in Hong Kong 
or say JVs in China uh, and utilizing Hong Kong as the base purely for that reason. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, we've got to also be a little bit careful because the general rule of law is still different. We're talking national security. I think where the problem lies is, like as we said earlier, what is that line of national security? Mm-hmm. What are they going to constitute national security in measure? Um, someone going about their everyday of business, there is definitely a difference in law. Um, now, when you talk about economic data, it's like you said, does that call that come under national security? Now, those are where the problem lies. Mm-hmm. And that's why businesses won't come. It's not the fact that you're not getting the second law. You do. It, the general understanding is as long as we're going about our gen, you know, day-to-day lives, we're, we're okay. We've got that second rule of law that, that's different to China. But where, the, where, where they're not excited about is the fact they don't know where that line is anymore. Mm-hmm. What is that line? And I think those are the things that need to be properly clarified. Now, I, I kind of agree in the sense we've had 20, you know, we've had hundreds of years of no national security law. Things have never in the last, uh, the basic law was for, uh, promulgated in, in the 80s. It's been about 40 years. So I agree with those kind of statements that we do need to update those kind of things. Um, but you have to do it in a proper way. You have to be clear about everything. And the problem with all the new laws over the last four years is they've not been clear about anything. And that's what's keep dry, and keeping people away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as I said earlier, there are much more draconian cities out there. Probably most of the world is more draconian than Hong Kong. But it's the, it's that lack of clarity that's that's the problem. Mm. And it's deliberate, isn't it? So I get the impression that <laughs> the people who draft this legislation don't want that clarity. They want to leave it sort of almost all-encompassing. Um, and then they can decide at the time, you know, how far they want to go in enforcing it. Well, I, I'm going to interrupt there. I, I think it's a game of chicken. I think that a lot of people here want this obfuscation so that nobody takes responsibility. Mm. And so that's, again, another problem, on top of which so much of the stuff here is simply not thought through. I mean, this this current waste disposal stuff going on, again, it all ties in with this lack of clarity, lack of thinking things through. What? Why does economic data have to do? Why is a GDP figure suddenly a national security figure? What, 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 what's, what's the issue there? Mm. Um, but it's, it's also, it's not thought through policy. And is this going to vibes. keep talent away, do you think? Is it going to um, make it harder for us to, to reverse the brain drain that we're seeing? I for think sure. so. I don't, I don't think so. I don't see why people would want to come here to then be threatened by some policeman who says you've crossed at a green line and that's against the law and it's also national security. Pay me money. I just got stuck with something like that where I had to pay $13,500 in cash to some very officious policeman because of some very minor breach um, handled in a very officious way. Um, and I'm sure he was about to cite national security. <laughs> Nitin, do you think this is going to keep uh, keep people away from Hong Kong? Oh, for sure. Um, I think, like like I said, it's it's completely down to the lack of, the lack of clarity. And I think... Um, now, you know why they're being a little bit opaque about everything, and that's purely just because they've got certain people they want to target. And now that is the problem. Is It's pretty obvious out there that this law is out there to target certain, type, uh, certain types of people and certain people in, in particular. Um, and if they try and make, if they get it too clear, there's a possibility these guys can get away on technicalities. So they want to keep it opaque because this just makes it a lot easier to get those guys that they want. Mm-hmm. And I think 
that is the biggest problem. And now you you can come from overseas and say, I've never really been involved in Hong Kong politics or anything. That won't matter. If you're seen to be helping or, you know, advising anyone overseas. So if you've got any political, con you know, uh, connections overseas, you're not going to want to come here. And a lot of these companies, they do require government help at certain points or they do get government funding. They're going to be scared about stuff like that. It's like, does that constitute me working with these governments? There's a whole number of fact things out there where people are just not going to want to come because it, they're too scared. It's just too fearful over where where is where what am i doing is that right is that not right is this okay is this not okay hmm. um and yeah so definitely i can't see a lot of talent or a lot of companies certainly coming out here i'm um, just not you know after all Peter, it also has something to do with taiwan because we were supposed to be the big shining beacon for the mainland the, the mainland could point to us and say look at how hong kong is prospering taiwan why don't you just come and join us and it would have maybe been easier but now all of a sudden we're getting caught on on jaywalking and such national security breaches that um the taiwanese are being put off even more and surprise surprise they have an election then which kind of says as much in a very different way of course just a couple of weeks ago mm. despite all the yeah, efforts sorry, can i just step in on that when you talk about hong kong prospering let's not forget the stock market is back at levels that it was at in 1997 mm. yes we're talking 27 years of zero returns in the stock market Mm. Uh, let's not forget that. I mean, that shows how bad it's been. Yes. There is still a general pessimism around, isn't there? I mean, if you, if you look at things like the American Chamber of Commerce latest mm. business uh, sentiment survey, which was released um, this week, um, they, they cite a number of things. But what, what stood out was 26% of respondents reported they're pessimistic about the business outlook for the next 12 months. And 60% um, are not going to make any changes in investment or hiring plans. They're not planning to increase them. That's not really encouraging, is it? Enzio? No. Um, it, it, and how could it be? Again, I, I really think it's – I put a lot of this at the doorstep of the local government here wanting to be more Chinese than the mainland and doing things like this killing of English because they think that that's what China wants. And China never said that. It never said, we we don't want you to speak English. In fact, if anybody, if anybody speaks very good English, it's a lot of mainlanders coming into Hong Kong. Mm. What is it, Nitin, that's going to turn this around and get people, you know, like, um, for example, the American businesses here in Hong Kong in that survey to be more optimistic about Hong Kong so that they're going to want to increase investment, want to go and increase their hiring plans? I think ultimately we can't lose sight of the fact that we are the gateway to China and China's gateway to the world. So for an American, I think you've got to see some of the geopolitical risks thawing. You got to see China's economy starting to go the right way. You're going to be, you know, you want to be optimistic in terms of China's growth. And that will lead to people naturally coming back to Hong Kong because they want to participate in that mm. China story. I mean, ultimately, it's always going to come down to the dollar. And the problem that people have at the moment is the fact that China's economy as a whole has been struggling. And there's no reason for any international company to go into China at the moment because they just feel they're just not going to get any rewards out of it. And that's hurting Hong Kong. And mm. flip side is given the fact the struggles in China, they don't and the capital um preservation and the capital controls that's going on in China, there's not a lot of Chinese companies that can go overseas either. 
So Hong Kong being the gateway into China and out of China, it's not being it's not being served very well on either side at the moment. And that's only when that starts changing and China reopens up and starts getting more prosperous, is that going to then start seeing uh, Hong Kong start prospering again? Interestingly, in that HM yes. survey, the mainland economy was cited as one of the top three concerns um, by by businesses in uh, in the American Chamber of Commerce, along with uh, geopolitical issues and also overseas perceptions of Hong Kong. Well, we are the the as just to buttress what Nitin was saying, we are the water skier off the back of the Chinese speedboat, and until they they stop with their party state capitalism, that we can discuss later. Um, it's just the, both places aren't going to go anywhere. And that's why I'm suggesting to our investors, just don't don't touch China and Hong Kong. It's a waste of time and there are other opportunities out there. Really? So you, you, you would advise clients just right now um, not to invest at all in either the mainland or Hong don't Kong? Don't touch it with the barge pole because it's, 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 it's going to go incendiary now with too much arbitrary stuff also going on here. And it, it's just this this lack of direction um, in terms of, of clear-cut policy. And, and that's, I mean, this this whole thing with social housing here is, a, is an absolute disgrace that nothing's been happening about these poor cage people. It's a disgrace. Even China's been saying, do something, and we're not doing anything. Mm. So the priorities are wrong, you're saying. that's uh, Well, that's one of the major issues. I think issues. so. I think it's self-aggrandizement, feathering one's own nest, covering one's own backside, I'm seeking to curry favor with the mainland, and and then and then of course the local people, the the policemen here, for instance, some of them who are very good, others become very officious when you're caught with this heaven, this this national security breach of jaywalking, which is of course the top. That's the top issue for any city <laughs> in the world. Have right? you had a problem recently, <laughs> with jaywalking? <laughs> you you seem to be well, a, a fixated on it. Love with a jaywalking issue. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. It's contrary to you, I don't drive. So okay. <laughs> now look, another challenge for Hong Kong. Hong Kong courts ordered China Evergrande to be wound up after it was unable to come up with a restructuring plan that would satisfy international creditors. That's despite months of talks. High Court Judge Linda Chan issued the order on Monday, eight weeks after the debt-laden property developer won a surprise reprieve in the long-running lawsuit since then Evergrande, which has about $327 billion in liabilities, has made little progress towards clinching a restructuring agreement. Um, Nitan, the court's appointed now liquidators for China Evergrande. What do you reckon are the chances of those liquidators getting their hands on any assets in mainland China? Zero. Um, I think this is just purely for all their overseas assets. And it will just be a case of just liquidating what they have overseas. It's going to be a big mess. It's going to take years. I think everyone's accepting the fact it's going to be, it's going to take years. But in reality, this is something that's needed to happen. Um, They've been kicking the can down the road for way too long. Uh, So now I think it's really a point that you just had to start driving something. And yeah, let's see, let's see how it works. But I think ultimately... Funnily enough, I actually think ultimately this will be good. It, it, it starts the process of cleaning yes. up everything. So I think all, that is actually a good thing rather than people looking at it from a negative point of view. But it's it's not going to be good for creditors, is it? Because ultimately, the, as you say, the chances of them getting anything back from this are pretty minimal because uh, the mainland government is, seems to be very unlikely to allow um, the assets of Evergrande or any other property developer to be used to pay overseas creditors first um, before homeowners or other people have been made whole. Mm. 
Yeah, for sure. It's not going to be great for creditors, but I think, you know, probably over the last five, six years, creditors have probably priced it quite low in their books anyway. Oh, on yes. The basis they knew this was inevitable. So I don't think it's going to be as bad as people think, just purely because this is this has been a, this is a known beast. Hmm. It's not something that's just happened overnight. And yeah, what are your thoughts? This is going to be a challenge, isn't it? For for in some ways, for the Hong Kong courts here, because they do have recognition of um, insolvency procedures here on the mainland, where you know the the mainland is supposed to recognise decisions of Hong Kong courts when it comes to insolvency. But in practice, uh, it may not be as easy as it sounds. I'm very because I'm I'm more of a Mac guys you both know um i just think that it's it's quite good actually that that this has been decided in hong kong by hong kong courts as far as i understand this um because at least it's the main and saying hong kong courts this is something for you to decide not for us to decide because we're still very inwardly focused i think that's actually quite positive in its own curious way doesn't mm -hmm. mean that it's all going to be ideal but at least there is a, a, a division of labor one country two systems and i suppose to us Suppose, as opposed to our guys then jaywalking and wailing, going up to Beijing um, and saying, oh, could you please decide this case for us? We've taken the decisions here um, that need of what needs to be done. I think that's very good. Okay. Now, the IMF has upgraded its forecast for global oh, growth God. this year by 0.2 percentage points to 3.1%. It's held progress on curbing inflation. Um, it's left uh, its outlook for global growth next year unchanged at 3.2%. Uh, it cited the unexpected strength of the U.S. economy and fiscal support measures in China as reasons for the upgrade. Yeah. And the IMF now believes there's a reduced likelihood of a so-called hard landing. Enzio, um, that was the opposite of what they said last time, isn't it? Yes, they are following the bleating sheep, um, our four-legged woolly friends, um, yet again telling us the time by looking at somebody else's watch um, and... I just don't I don't know what the value is of any of this, frankly. Mohammed El Aryan is far the smarter of, of this batch um, on the board of Allianz, I believe, in Germany and of Cambridge University and other very lofty positions, saying that there's a brighter outlook. But then he also goes into worsening things like the legacy of over indebtedness, slow quality growth and policy mistakes. At least he's an original thinker. I just again. You know, Peter, you know me, Peter, on the World Bank and IMF, it's I am fired. It's always the same. They they, they just watch what everybody else is writing, then they then they go and parrot it. And I don't I just don't get what the value of that is. Mm -hmm. El Arian was far better in in at least identifying rightly or wrongly his view of where the global economy is headed, which is a slight improvement in the economic time. Mm. In a, a year or so ago, um, economists were generally pretty pessimistic, weren't they, about mm. global growth, about the US economy. They yeah. thought it was going to tip into recession and they were wrong. I'm just wondering, Nitin, if they're going to be wrong again this time now that they're all getting more optimistic again. I think they're notorious for not necessarily getting it right. Um, so I think it's a tough one. I think the reality is US economy is in kind of a Goldilocks position at the moment. I think things are going well. I mean, all the numbers are pretty positive. There are little signs, though, that there is a turn. Now, whether it be a number of corporates that are starting to lay off people, mm -hmm. which might start tip the, tipping the job market the other way, whether it be the fact that 
People are starting to struggle in terms of mortgages. There's going to have to be some sort of refinancing done this year on some homes. So it's not the case now where it's going to be 92% have those low interest rates because some of those fixed uh, rate mortgages will come up and they're going to have to remortgage at a higher rate. So that will hurt some people. Um, so I think it's kind of finely balanced. I don't think we're at the point yet where things are definitely going to start turning negative and people, you know, people asking for this rate cuts. I think that's very, very premature. Um, but I do think overall it, it's a lot more balanced than it was. So I, I was a bit surprised that they've raised those uh, growth target, uh, growth expectations. And I actually thought they'd keep them relatively sta stable because I can't really see what's going to drive that extra growth. Mm. Um, Europe's yes. not exactly had the greatest fourth quarter last year. Um, China, we all know the problems. Now you can say fiscal measures are going to help a little bit, but until there's a complete shift in stance in China, yeah. and there is a focus purely on getting that economy back on track, allowing private companies to do what they need to do, um, allowing all industries to flourish, I can't see China's economy getting back on track. Mm. Property market's still dying. Every People's wage growth, I mean, I think there's there's a study out there that shows white-collar workers are earning less than they've had for a number of years. Mm. Um, so there's a number of factors out there. What's going to get that China growth? A little bit of fiscal stimulus? That's not going to really do much. So I think that one is a bit of a surprise. India is, you know, it's going along its merry way. But we all know that at a certain time, that only lasts for so long. And it's had a pretty good two, three years. So I, I don't know. I mean, for me, I think they're going to get it wrong in terms of raising the targets but the or their expectations. But I don't think we're at a stage yet where things are definitely turning over either. Enzio, mm. this is the strange thing, isn't it? They cited as one of the reasons for their upgrade fiscal support measures in China. Um, but it begs the question, yeah. what fiscal support measures are they are referring to? Because what we've seen is a lot of talk about support measures, but not mm. a lot of action. Well, a horse, never forget that a camel is a horse designed by committee, Peter. Hmm. <laughs> what that means is that they all sort of sit around and con it's consensus time and protect my job on the board here of the IMF, so I'd better agree with everybody else. The fact is that people, in my mind, who are talking about fiscal and monetary support are completely labeling China a cyclical problem, where in fact it's a structural problem imbued with the cancer of party state capitalism that we've rattled on about for weeks now and um that's not really getting very much coverage in the press which is fine by me but it does mean that people if if people are investing in china because the the chinese government is st dumping in a little bit of money into the markets and then prohibiting all sorts of short selling um and they're thinking that's going to make the market go up i think they better go and look again, that's just not going to happen. Mm. And the FOMC, of course, is meeting uh, today. Mm. We're going to get the decision tomorrow morning, in the early hours of tomorrow morning, yes. Hong Kong time. Um, the, um, the pressure they're under for rate cuts, they're not being helped by the data, are they, really? Because um, inflation's coming down, growth is still pretty robust, yes. the job market is yes. robust, the housing market is robust. How on earth do they start thinking about cutting rates? Well, I think that's a market... That's a market figment maybe it's the algorithmic lizards with the traders hungry to make hungry to book trading profits doing this pushing this this sort of myth that there are going to be six rate cuts this year 
Um, I myself don't see that because I it's, the economy is still contrary to, and I was definitely wrong on this. It doesn't, we all get things right and wrong. Um, I wasn't expecting the US economy to be as robust as it is, speaks for the American spirit, but um, that's certainly then it's going to, the the um, real, the, the actual inflation rate, this per capita earnings um, inflation rate is still 30% above the 2% target. It's the 2.6% as you wrote, whereas once it's the once the target is 2%, so there's still there's still quite a bit of leeway to go down. If they were to start cutting now, if, if there were some big boo-boo happening down the road, they can, they then can't cut rates suddenly again to boost the economy. So I think they will. I still think they're going to be very very cautious about cutting rates. Mm, so the algorithmic lizards, as you call them, have got yes. it wrong. Yes, yes. They're, well, they're just not thinking, but then they are generative after all. <laughs> Nitin, what about the carbon-based traders? What are, what are they thinking? <laughs> well, I think the reality is the rate cuts are really coming from the traders. So I have a friend of mine who he's, he's in New York, New York. He's here at the moment. And I was chatting to him and he was like, look, our economy is flourishing. I don't, he even doesn't understand what this whole talk about rate cuts is about. Mm. Other than the fact, that I think as NGO said, traders just want to book some profits. Um, yes. I don't. I don't think the FOMC is going to start talking about rate cuts no, too aggressively. No. I think it's they're going to continue the rhetoric yeah. that might be a second half of the year thing, but again, it has to be supported by data. All the data at the moment is supporting either. I, mean, I think it supports things stability. Um, all of those rate hikes seem to have been taken on board a lot better than a lot of people predicted, and the economy is still going strong. Yes. So I don't. I don't see any reason for them to change their rhetoric mm -hmm. and start turning around and going, we're going to cut rates in March. On the contrary, I think they will probably remind the markets we've always been talking about the fact that it's going to be mm -hmm. at the latter end of the year, and they'll, re they'll reiterate that. I, to me, nothing changes there. Okay, well, we'll find out tomorrow morning. And of course, we will report and discuss on that in Money Talk tomorrow morning once we've heard the FOMC decision. Thank you both very much. You heard the Nitin Dialdas, who's Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. Enzio Von Fowl, who is Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. I'm joined now by Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pessick. Good morning, William. Good morning, Peter. Uh, here's a couple of statistics for you about some market performances this year. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index down almost 8% now uh, in January. And the Tech Index down almost 18%. The Shanghai Composite uh, down 5%. By contrast, Japan's Nikkei 225's up 7.8% year to date. This seems to be continuing the trend, doesn't it, that we've been seeing uh, last year of Japan outperforming in Asia, um, Chinese markets underperforming. I'm wondering, though, if there's something that we can learn from Japan because you've had long periods of this, haven't you, where the market really has been in the doldrums along with the economy. I have. It's a good point. I mean, the um, certainly the, this, the disconnect between these you know North Asian markets, it's pretty stark at the moment. I think in Japan, you're seeing this continued kind of safe haven bid, if you will. I think that a lot of investors, they want to remain in Asia but they're looking at different geopolitical crosswinds or looking at different economic risks, financial risks. And they're looking at Japan. And for all the fleas you find here on the economy, Japan still has a bit of a safe haven uh, bid at the moment because it is stable. The Bank of Japan is not stepping away from QE just yet. 
And even though the politics here are a bit scandal ridden at the moment and a little distracted, um, things are actually quite uh, calm here relative to what you're seeing elsewhere in the world. And so when you look at the different corporate governance tweaks that have taken place here in the last 10 years, the BOJ still in QE and the chaos around us, uh, Japan looks like a pretty comfortable place right now. Mm. And of course, um, the government and the stock exchange is concerned now about shareholder returns and boosting them. Um, shareholder returns on the mainland in China are way down the list of concerns, <laughs> I think, for President Xi Jinping. Absolutely. And one other thing, too, there's a lot of optimism here in Japan that the coming spring wage negotiations, what they call the Shunto round of, round of wage negotiations, will actually result in Japanese workers getting a, another significant raise. And so you put all that together and you know, people are looking at Japan and saying, well, you know, we'll see where this goes. China, of course, uh, as you know, has been in the news uh, for some of the wrong reasons in recent days. China Evergrande is back in the global headlines mm. at a moment when Xi Jinping probably doesn't want it. And there are a lot of questions about the extent to which China can grow 5% in the year ahead and the extent to which Xi Jinping's government really is taking seriously the need to end this crop, this property crisis once and for all so that so that uh, China no longer faces this kind of Japanification uh, speculation, if you will. Mm. But despite, you know, all the measures that have been rolled out in, in recent days or been talked about anyway, because they haven't been acted on, but talked about to try and stabilise the market. The thing is, this this stock route, it hasn't really come out of the blue, has it? it it's actually been building up over quite a period of time. Yes. I mean, I, I still think back quite a lot to 2015, the summer of 2015, when Shanghai stocks lost about 30% of their value in a few weeks. And when you look at the ways in which China reacted to that, um, you know, they sort of threw the entire government at the market, the kitchen sink, if you will. They switched off the IPO market. They stopped trading in like 1,400 companies, um, capital controls, leverage requirements, PBOC cutting rates, the, the government calling out the so-called national team to buy stocks. But many of the problems that you had in 2015 still exist now. You have you still have kind of extreme opacity. Uh, you have the continued uh, dominance of state-owned enterprises. You have weak corporate governance. You have regulatory uncertainty. Um, so in many ways, China has been fixing or addressing the symptoms of their problems, not the underlying ailments. And I think investors in 2024 are being reminded that when you look at the last nine years, China had this incredible window to raise its financial game and it really hasn't put a lot of reform wins on the scoreboard, not to the extent that investors had hoped. And um, here we are, nine years later. And of course, it's clear that this time around, we're not going to get that same sort of big bazooka because President Xi Jinping has, has said so. He doesn't. I, I, I almost get the feeling that the government regrets what they did um, sort of eight years ago, and they're certainly not going to repeat that. It's true, but it creates a quite a balancing act at the moment, because I think that President Xi's government has not been very good at telegraphing what they're thinking, what they're doing to the markets. And if China really is confident that the economy is more stable than investors believe and that they believe that time is on their side and they can be patient about pumping stimulus into the markets, this is the time to let us know. You know, sending Premier Li to Davos was fine, but they need to be hitting the, the podiums a lot more actively and talking about what they're thinking and what they're doing to give investors the sense that there is light at the end of the tunnel. We're on this. We're on top of this. We're doing things at our own pace. Don't worry. They're not doing enough of that. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why you still see 
mainland stocks being so shaky and why Hong Kong is not getting out, uh, get, getting off easily as well. Mm. And the, the priority, though, seems to be meddling in the markets now, coming up with support <clears throat> measures such as banning short selling. They're even stopping, um, you know, long only funds from selling. And they're also stopping um, investors from investing overseas. I mean, there's been a lot of demand for uh, Japanese stock products, ETFs linked to the Nikkei 225. And um, uh, the authorities are telling brokers and fund management firms not to offer them out to, um, to clients. But as we've seen before, because Japan had a period as well, didn't it, where it wanted to meddle and intervene in its stock market, it, it doesn't work. Well, Japan is still meddling in the currency market, and, and that in many ways is affecting the stock market. Japan is now the biggest owner of stocks through uh, ETFs, and so uh, EFTs rather, exchange trade uh, ETFs rather. Uh, so basically, Japan is still meddling. And I think that what you're seeing in China again at the moment really is very 19, I'm sorry, it's a very uh, 2015, if you will, um, mm-hmm. the way that we are seeing the government meddling. They really are still treating the symptoms of the problem, not the underlying problem. And, you know, you can certainly strong arm investors and tell them how to invest where and when, but it doesn't fix the underlying problems in the markets. China still needs a, a much more vibrant capital market system. Uh, we don't have that. They, China, China still needs a much more vibrant and transparent credit rating system. We don't have that. And also, I think there's still a lot of concern about regulatory uncertainty, regulatory chaos. I mean, the, the events of 2020 and you know, basically Jack Ma, these, they're still hovering over investor sentiment to some extent. And when you see that China in the, the waning days of 2023 began talking about going after gaming platforms again, I think that uh, in many ways has investors taking a deep breath and saying the year ahead could be very interesting. So they're looking at the divide between what President Xi Jinping's team is saying and what they're doing. And the gap arguably is getting wider at the moment uh, as the year begins. Mm. And isn't one of the problems also that, that China, President Xi Jinping's government, sees businesses and companies, not just state-owned enterprises, but private enterprises, <clears throat> as their role to being supporting the, the policies of the Chinese Communist Party. They're not there um, to plow their own farrow and be entrepreneurial. They're there to really support um, sort of ideological decisions, really, and ideological goals. That, that presumably is a problem. It is. And, you know, you and I are old enough to remember back in 2012, 20, you know, basically uh, 2013, when President Xi was talking about letting market forces play a significant role or a leading role in Beijing decision making. And here we are, you know, 10, 11 years later, and we're still talking about government meddling. And, you know, you can argue that what we're seeing is the state owned sector. You know, the empire has struck back in, in, over the last couple of years. I mean, we could talk about the COVID effect and the extent to which the government um, panicked a bit in terms of looking at the private sector um, you know, coming into its own around the world. But I think in, in many ways, when you look at the, this, this window, this 10, 11-year window when Xi Jinping was supposed to be this incredible reformer, um, basically altering you know, economic engines, retooling things. We haven't seen as much of it as you would have hoped. And I think in 2024, I think a lot of investors are looking around saying, you know, what's happening here? Um, what are the plans for the year ahead? And I think this is one of the problems that the Xi government has. They're just not very good at communicating. Mm. And I, I presume this has knocked on the head uh, uh, the government's ambitions for the, the Chinese economy to overtake the U.S. economy by the end of this decade. That really doesn't look like it's on the cards anymore. 
It's true. And you know, the U.S. has just been uh, the, the U.S. just continues to confound the naysayers. I mean, if you had told me a year ago uh, that the U.S. would be experiencing a soft landing right now, that the U.S. would be in some ways experiencing growth superior to China, I never would have believed it. But here we are. Uh, you know, I keep on reading about the Teflon U.S. economy. And, you know, perhaps some of that can be overdone. And I think with the U.S. election cycle coming up and Republicans and Democrats brawling, uh, this could be a very interesting year for the U.S. and, and not in a good way. But in, in many ways, when you look at where China is and where the U.S. is as 2024 begins, it is not where Xi Jinping had hoped. Because mm, that gap is now widening, isn't it, rather than narrowing? And also in terms of per income capita as well, uh, the ambition to get people's incomes up to more uh, closer to U.S. levels, that, that's taken a knock as well. And one of the problems, too, is you've seen a lot of talk in recent years, certainly, especially since Premier Lee arrived on the scene uh, in March of last year, a lot of talk about building a, a broader, more trusted safety net system in China to hustle more confidence to, say, spend to buy stocks and bonds, not just apartments. And we haven't seen enough of that. And so there hasn't been enough structural change in China to get consumers to consume more. So again, we see a lot of slogans from the Xi government. We don't see a lot of moves on the ground that would give households the confidence to say, well, I'm going to begin consuming the way, say, Westerners do to boost the economy because they're concerned about future prospects. And so I, I don't think we've seen enough structural reform on the ground to change consumer attitudes in China either. And one of the problems China needs to deal with, and maybe once again, this is where they can look to Japan, that's, you know, maybe the consequences of not trying to deal with it early enough is deflation um, and, and getting on top of deflation as quickly as possible. They don't seem to be learning the lessons uh, of, of the pain that Japan went through there. It is true. It's um, as someone who's uh, who's written a book about this in the last decade. It's it's kind of painful to watch. It's painful to watch the extent to which China thinks that time is on their side. And again, you know, China's deflation at the moment is generally pretty mild. But the problem with deflation is it becomes ingrained a lot faster than governments tend to realize. It's the boiling frog problem, right? But before you realize you've got a deflation problem, it's already too late. And you know, I think that we're reminded right now that the People's Bank of China is not an independent entity. Otherwise, they might be taking more steps to expand the money supply. They haven't because I think President Xi is worried about, um, in some ways, turning back some of the progress he feels like he's made on deleveraging the economy, on getting lenders and borrowers to make better decisions. But the PBOC really probably should be pumping more money into the system strategically, You know, not with abandon, but taking steps to get liquidity where it needs to be to at least change perceptions, because the problem with inf you know inflation, they, it, it's about perceptions and deflation is as well. And if you're an investor, if you're a CEO, if you're a household, you're looking at prices going forward. It does alter your your thoughts. And China's demographics, as we as we know, are not moving in the right direction. And when you have an aging population, that is inherently deflationary because older people don't spend the way younger people do. So China has a big challenge in its hands, and I don't see enough uh, recognition at the top levels of Xi's government that this is a, a battle. Okay, well, thank you very much, William. Always a pleasure talking with you. Same here, Peter. Thank you. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk.
Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll be back tomorrow when I'll be joined on the show by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. With a view from South Korea is Peter Kim, head of global investment strategy at KB Financial Group in Seoul. See you tomorrow. Money Talk. 